Hi, I'm Rob Langton from Development Ready. Our interview series delves into the lives of Australia's most respected property thought leaders and decision makers and uncovers what makes them tick. This is the interview. This afternoon we have the great pleasure of having with us Aussie Care from Resimax Group, founder and managing director. Aussie, thanks for your time this afternoon. I want to know, where did your interest in property first originate from? I feel like most property investors, I think you're always you know, look for properties near where you've lived or where your parents have lived. And for myself, I just bought a property that was close to mum and dad's and um, that was my first foray into property, age of about 20. Um, and I haven't looked back since. So um, at the time, I thought I might have made a mistake and my parents sure told me I've made a big mistake, don't buy, but um, you know, they come from a background where buy a property with a big parcel of land, not a, not a small parcel, and this property well, didn't have a big parcel of land, but it ended up working out well. And walk us through some of your early projects when you first became a property developer. What sort of projects were you developing? Mainly, again, mainly townhouses. Uh, I stuck to the area that I knew most, which was that sort of northern Pasco Vale, sort of Brunswick, Coburg area. I was hated after about five years because I think I was just buying every parcel of land that came up and developed it into townhouses, you know. The site only fits three, but I'm trying to get six on there, a typical developer. Um, so I could see now um, why I wasn't probably liked then. But uh, look, I stuck to those areas only because they're the areas I knew back to front. I knew every single parcel that was sold, every you know, the price, and I was com confident that anything I bought out there, I knew what I was buying, I knew what price I should be buying it for, and I knew what was a good price and what wasn't, so, um, you know, it's why I, you know, stuck there and it worked out quite well and slowly outgrew that little suburb um, where I couldn't buy the the size of the parcels that I wanted to buy, so I had to venture out, and, um, but I had fun, it was you know, good fun developing out there, I learnt a lot and that was good. And talk us through the, the Resimax business and your other businesses as they are today. We're here in Drury Place, beautiful office building that you owned and have uh, refurbished here. But talk us through Resimax and those other businesses. Who's involved and, and what's your involvement on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, so, I mean, Resimax has been around, maybe probably not Resimax itself, the group, I mean, that's the brand, but um, we've been around 15 20 years building what we've got today. And Resimax, the brand, was sort of established about 10 years ago. But over time, it's, it's grown substantially. And predominantly over the last four years, three to four years, we've really set our sights on growing it a lot rapidly. And um, we've secured the services of um, Steve Hooker, probably, I think, just over three years now as our CEO. Um, that was a great acquisition. Probably the first big step that I took as a business to relieve some of the workload and share it. Um, he's been great, great asset, um, big plans um, coming from where he's come from where, you know, there's sort of open checkbooks and things like that. Um, but uh, he's been very good at helping me spend the money, um, but, you know, in a good way and we've grown and we've hired some really, you know, the good CEO being Darren Mill and um, you know, a couple of big key management roles that we've got in, in place. So we've established a business now that can really take that next step and continue to grow um, you know, and heading in the right direction. And you mentioned Steve Hooker there, of course, famous Australian Olympian. How did that relationship come about? Did you bump into him at, a, at an event or, uh, or did you just sort of see him and meet him through business contacts? And second part of that is what sort of uh, expertise or, or skills does he bring to the table? Those that wouldn't know Steve see or would have 
previously seen Steve as more of a sportsman and I mean he still is fantastic, he's still very fit and athletic and puts everyone to shame but outside of that, those that know Steve intimately, um, he's a very, very disciplined guy as you'd expect someone that's gone through what he's gone through and achieved the heights that he's achieved um, but he's also um, amazing with the team morale and the culture. Um, that was very important for me um, as a business. It's still then my number one outcome that we achieve for at Resimax is the, it's having the right culture. Um, and it was a, a bit of a transition for Steve coming from that sort of corporate environment to something that's the, on the other end of the scale. But as a benefit to Resimax Group, it's sort of been now a halfway point where we've moved away from just myself ad hoc making decisions on the go as a typical entrepreneur on a smaller type business to now there's a there's a good balance so that's been great and he's you know skill Steve's skill set in property knowledge and understanding how to manage people which has been the key driver to our business growth um, has been invaluable so you mentioned culture there as you said you sort of walk in this building it's a it's a dynamic culture it seems like a fun place to work um, how do you build something like that? I mean, how do you how do you become a business where people walk in the door and they actually want to work? Ah, well, your first day is you throw a party, and you get the tequila out and the vodka and the lemon and the limes, and then, bang, <laughs> they've got the culture. So, um, I think Steve's had a few of those days, um, and a, a few of the senior guys have experienced it, and um, a couple of them actually experienced it before getting hired. It's like, oh, we're on, we're in. I think everything about our business is like that. So, you know, it's not like you can walk in the doors and you can instantly just see this is not by the books, obviously, but more um, through systemizing processes and, and everything as much as we can. But still, the objective is the office needs to be fun. Um, you know, there's always someone clowning around doing something. And, um, you know, it's important for us uh, that that culture stays there because it is, there's a lot of friends in this um, office that are out, that are friends outside of work which is great because we've got the bar downstairs everyone goes down for drinks and you know at four in the morning I'm getting a, a phone call or a text from one of them being asked to leave because they've had too much to drink and like I have to just <laughs> ignore that call or whatever it may be but with Steve I mean going back to Steve I met Steve um, I was actually I was at an auction I was auctioning this building I was trying actually wanting to buy it I was a tenant at the time and Steve uh, was out at the auction um, and Steve came and introduced himself and said hello and said would like he'd like to catch up because um, ha we'd had a mutual accountant at the time and um, it was over summer, three years back now and he, I think he rode his bike to meet me and I thought, where are you staying in Mornington, where are you? And he's like, no, I was, he, it was an hour and a half or two hour bike ride and I was like, okay. So I caught up with him for a coffee and we had about three coffees. I still didn't know why he wanted to catch up until uh, about the third or fourth coffee but um, I soon realised he was very smart because he just cornered me into a job that I didn't even know. I was like, you're hired. And I was like, I wasn't looking for anyone. Um, so, and he quickly, not long after, became, about four months later, I think, uh, just became the CEO. Um, you know, well-deserved position and um, haven't looked back. He's been a great asset to the business. And um, to be honest, the business probably wouldn't be going through its growth phase and its success at the moment without people like Steve and some really good people that Steve's hired along the way to build this business. Which I don't think I would have probably gone down that path on my own. And take us through the business today. I mean, what sort of projects have you got underway and, and what are they and in what locations? Yeah, we're quite diverse. Um, it's hard to really pinpoint because um, if, if we had to go through what Resimax or 
um, the group has. It's, it's quite unique in the sense of we don't specifically target one type of segment. We focus on a particular area or segment of in the property market, but my motto is quite easy. If there's money to be made, we'll just do it. You know, it doesn't matter what it is. If it's um, so, at the moment, I think we are, we do ex we do excel in the land subdivision space. We are running a really big development um, that we secured about a year ago, um, the end of 2019. Um, we haven't really had a good run on it in 2020, but we've done we've done well to sort of pick it up off its feet. So, with the in the Ainsbury Estate, it's got you know. It's got about 300 hectares of open forest there, you know, forest land, and it's got the golf course and, um, you know, some restaurants and bars, and, you know, it's got the ability to run, you know, four, four five, or even 10,000 residential lots over time. So it's a, quite a large subdivision, probably our marquee project, um, and, yeah, it's probably the most exciting thing that Resimax has at the moment on its books. We've got a couple of other projects that we run in the north, again, land subdivisions and several townhouse developments. So we would probably, at any one time, we would be probably running between 10 and 12 projects um, in the development space, in that sort of land townhouses or um, smaller apartment stuff. A few city build things that we're doing in the city, but not no, not claiming to be any um, tower developer or anything like that. I think that's um, a little bit out of my forte. So we're just doing more of the four or five level um, office spaces, you know, more the funky office spaces. Um, and it's similar to this building, you know, it's a, you know, a, a retrofit five, six level building. And what about um, in the current market? I mean, obviously it's been a, a challenging year. This year, have you has your mandate changed at all as a result of what's happened this year? And and if so, where is the opportunity at the moment for yourself, or where's the opportunity in general? Do you think for property developers in Melbourne? Look, I'd, I'd love to say that we've that the land subdivision space and the outer suburbs have got great deals going on because. I'd love to be buying them. Um, so if anyone's got any good deals going on cheap, I'm there. But um, I don't think they exist at the moment. Uh, everyone was hopeful that that would come up, but um, it's such a um, competitive space and um, I haven't seen any of that come to fruition. Um, you know, I've seen a little bit in the city in the sense of some office spaces and, and um, some residual stock sort of look a bit distressed in its values and things like that. And there's a couple that we're looking at at the moment, you know, more the hotel spaces as well. Mm -hmm. But no, nothing major. I think all the guys that have tried to hold on to everything as long as they could and sort of ride out this wave 2020, which is um, one thing should be, should wish everyone should get through it okay. Where do you think is the biggest challenge for developers at the moment? Is it still the cost of construction? Is it the cost of materials? Is it the yeah. difficulty in finding sites? Look, I think for us, I can only speak you know, what we're going through. I think on the development side, we've pretty much got all our I's dotted and T's crossed in the sense of what we go through in a process in regards to all, all of the sort of development side, because a lot of it's done internally. I think the biggest issue at the moment, what we're seeing is it's more the end purchases, getting their funding and their finance approved, which is, all, which is essentially delaying settlements because they can't get their funding approved from banks. So I'm finding one, funding approval from banks, or two, even if they can get funding, it's very much delayed. The days of getting funding in 14 days from, you know, it's just non-existent now. I mean, you're lucky to get 
25 to 30% done on the day they should, and then they sort of, they'll, they'll filter through. So that, I think that's been the biggest hurdle um, and the biggest concern out there is just fast tracking the processes of, of getting these end buyers settling. So, you know, the government's gonna offer all the incentives in the world and you can stimulate the economy, but I think that's where we're finding the biggest roadblock at the moment is people just getting their finance approvals. You've previously mentioned in, a, uh, in an interview that you like to control the process from start to finish. Walk us through why that philosophy is important to yourself. Well, again, outside of um, actually having our own bank and getting all, getting all our clients settled, um, that's one thing we can't control. Um, but yeah, it's important for us because in the past, um, we weren't in the position, and, and, and I guess you get this flexibility and this luxury as you grow and, and you're able to you know, achieve those sort of results. But it just helps in the sense of when you need to make changes, um, changes can be made really, really quickly. And I think that's been our biggest advantage um, in what we do, and it's been my advantage for the last 15 years. Um, essentially, I back my judgment. Um, that Sometimes that judgment in making quick calls is not the right judgment, but you live and die by the sword. And if you get, if you get it right most times, you're going to be in front. Um, so fortunately, we've been getting it right most times and, and we're in front. But uh, look, that's essentially, you know, been out of control everything from getting your planning permits, you know, acquiring your land, um, doing your subdivision, um, you know, doing your sales, your marketing, and, you know, doing your construction. So we've got, you know, Tick Homes, which is our building brand, and, uh, and then even just doing the property, property leasing, the property management. So essentially all parts of the businesses, from, you know. We still use external consultants and things like that, but just having an internal team that can sort of manage everything just helps us prioritise what needs to get done. We can quickly just say, well, you know what, well, yes, we're working on that, but let's put that aside now, let's prioritise on this, and that can be done in a day, and we all, pretty much the whole office just shifts to that mm. priority, so we can go to market much quicker than most, and yeah. And we can alloc allocate resources to that very quickly. You mentioned before buyers. What, what are some of their main considerations they're making at the moment, do you think, outside of funding, and I guess, how do you, differentiate a Resimax group project to that of, you know, the tens of other developers out there? How do you make them buy into yours? Yeah, I think that's all got to do with our marketing, um, you know, how we run our marketing. And every project we look at, we look at what is the key driver to that project? What's going to make that project different than anyone else's outside of price? I mean, because it's easy to be competitive on price. Um, well, it's easy if you can afford to, but essentially that's, for me, that's the easiest way to actually make sales is you keep dropping your prices, but that's not necessarily the right thing to do. So you've got to find a, a niche that makes you a little bit different than everyone else outside of pricing. I mean, you should be competitive, but um, you shouldn't have to just keep dropping your prices every time. You know, Joe Blow down the road drops their prices, and um, I find that developers that do that um, will probably get unstuck. So we, we look at things that, and before we go through an acquisition process, these are the things we look at. We don't look at things and say, well, we have to sell at this price we sort of want to use. For instance, in Ainsbury, we went through the Ainsbury transaction because it was a lifestyle product. We said, well, it's priced well, it's, it's got, you know, you can walk around the forest for, you know, 300 hectares of forest, it's got a golf course on there, it's, it's already got an existing community of 3,000 people, it's got restaurants, what other outer suburb estate 
there, there is only a handful of those in Australia that, that can sort of claim to that. So we looked at that and said, well, that's, that's all we need. And, and we've worked really hard on, on, on pushing that out in the marketing place, not really based on price, because we don't need to. Um, you know, you stay competitive with everyone else, but it's not price sensitive. It's, it's very much a lifestyle product. You just got to get people out there. Once they see it, they're sold. Um, you know, people are willing to pay that extra ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars if it's somewhere they really want to live. Um, and yeah, that's the difference between um, you know, that particular product than you know the surrounding areas. And it might be a train station, it might be a shopping centre, whatever that may be. We just use that. And it's probably too early to sort of have a view on this, but I'll ask you anyway. Have you seen any assets come across your desk this year that you wouldn't normally have, have expected, given everything that's, that's gone on? Or alternatively, have you seen the likelihood of any distressed assets coming online next year? Yeah, look, I have, because only recently I'm just looking at, and I won't give all the details because I know all these um, big pocket developers will be all out there trying to outbid me, so I'll leave that to myself. But yeah, I have got a couple that I'm working through at the moment, um, and which I wouldn't have expected to come to the market. Um, at all. Um, whether we pick them up at the price that we want or not, uh, I don't know. But you know, on the flip side, you know, like someone like myself, I've sold an asset, um, you know, during April, which was the peak, well, it was the first peak of, of you know, COVID and, um, you know, probably would have got more for it if I held onto it for a year or a year and a half. But, you know, we made the call to sell the asset with my partners at the time and, um, you know, Someone's picked that up at a probably, you know, I, what I believe is probably 10 or 15% under its you know, real value. So, you know, um, there's a good balance there. And you know, at the time, you know, we thought it was the right decision because um, we didn't see much growth in that asset for the next three to four years. So we just thought we might as well move it on now and let someone else hold on to it and enjoy the growth. So, yeah, it sort of balances out in the end. In terms of the, the lending environment, I mean, obviously the, the rise of non-bank lenders has been a, a, a big trend over the past sort of three to five years. Are you still seeing they're active in the marketplace or have you seen that the traditional banks are starting to come back into the market and, and offer great deals for developers? Oh, I think it will never be back to what it used to be. Um, you know, 10 years ago, I would never have thought, probably even six years ago, I would never have thought I'm paying um, you know, double digits interest for bloody for a loan. I'd be like, no, no way, no chance. That's not happening. You know, I think um, they've done a really good job in brainwashing us to have that as the norm now. Um, you know, you've got to factor it in when you're when you're purchasing. Um, but I just can't see banks coming back and lending and taking the risks. Um, you know, and I personally don't see them as risk. The banks do, but. Um, I think the private guys and the private institutions are you know, on a good thing and um, I think it'll stay there for a long time. I mean, the rates have become a little bit more competitive now than what they were probably four years ago. But there's a bit of a, a balance. I think the best thing that can happen for developments and for projects is for the banks to just be a really good retail lender in the sense where you know, they can fast track loans and they can, they can get the retail customers their good pricing of loans and approvals. And, and you know the private lenders keep doing focusing on the developers who can afford to pay a little bit more, and the good developers will will finish their projects on time, and it's not a huge burden. Where you get unstuck is when your projects drag out, or if you've got you know contractors that are delayed in delivering a project, where you really get hurt. That's when you start to feel that 
double-digit interest rate um, from these private lenders. But I think generally, I think um, there's, there could be a good blend of, um, they, they can work in sync and I think it's a good thing. Now, Aussie ResiMax uh, appears at least on the surface to be predominantly developing residential assets in the, in the land subdivision space. Do you see opportunity in say the office space, the industrial space or, or the hotel space potentially moving forward? ResiMax Group as a as a, a brand doesn't necessarily develop itself. It essentially is a service provider to a lot of the developments that I do through special purpose vehicle entities. Um, but yeah, look, we're doing an office building at the moment. Again, not not a tower, but you know, seven levels. I think it is. And um, you know, we do a, a couple of fitouts and renos in, in some heritage buildings. More of a bit of fun for me. Um, I enjoy it. Um, you know, I don't want to say land subdivisions is boring in any way, but it's um, not. That's stimulating um, looking at a paddock, you know, of dirt and then subdividing it into smaller paddocks of dirt. It's actually so, um, you know, I enjoy some of that commercial fit out stuff. Um, you know, we've got some hotels obviously with the Adelphi and a couple of hospitality venues. So we've always built our own venues from the ground up, pretty much always gut them and start again. And um, I enjoy that whole building process and seeing something come to a light. Um, from ground zero to the finished product. And I think the, the more complex something is, the more creative you can be in the end product and it's a lot more rewarding um, when you finish with it. So I think that's what I enjoy the most out of, you know, doing all of this fit outs and renovation work. And, um, you know, probably I wouldn't be doing, I wouldn't say I'd be doing any industrial work or um, that sort of stuff, you know, for in, the, in the suburbs, but I'll stick to my townhouses and residential, and even the townhouses, we're not doing as much anymore. I mean, look, we're doing one site for uh, like 85 townhouses, another site for about 90, but it's very hard to find sites that you can do that sort of volume these days, so they're very far from between. And the smaller ones don't, they just, they take the same amount of work to do, you know, a 10 or 15 unit subdivision or 20 unit development townhouse site than it takes to do you know a hundred or 150 um, so you know we've got to that point now we you know we have a minimum size that we sort of like to run run with and you know anything under 100 150 is probably on the smaller scale that we sort of look at passing now and, and a lot of stuff we're doing now is just residual stuff that we had as we were growing um, and now we're developing it out. And what about the, um, the build to rent sector? It looks like there's a, a lot of developers either starting to move into the sector or at least sort of exploring the and, and doing research behind the sector itself. Is that something that, that you have a view on? I think it's the next big thing, um, to be honest. I think the smarter guys have already been onto it and have been trying to do it. Uh, it's just a matter of actually now getting the banks to understand it and spend some time and appreciate what it is and work behind it because I think you need the banks to support a product like that. It's, it's very hard to make it work with sort of private money or institutional money because you've got to get the lower rates. Um, you know, you can always top it up with, with, with money behind it, but the banks need to find a way of supporting that sort of product and I think that's the way of the future. Um, for the next five years potentially, but yeah, we're looking at, um, we've been looking at a product, we've been trying to build our own build to rent for the last couple of years and it's nearly, we've nearly got to the pointy end of it now, so we're excited about it, but I'm a 100% believer of that. I think it's a 
great model and um, essentially what we're doing is doing a build to rent for all our investors anyway. We essentially sell them a parcel of land, they build a house, we design the homes that, that maximise it on that block of land and it gives them the best rentals and then we manage it for them and we run that whole process anyway and all the returns go to our investors, good luck to them and then we, you know, when we go to sell it they make all that capital gains and you know, they've taken the, that risk but it'd be nice to get some of it better retain some of it and, and keep that upside because you know as a property developer you sort of you make that margin on your you know your land or on your build whatever it may be but once you've sold that property it's finished that's it's it's gone there's no residual income that comes back from that so having that build to rent model means you just sort of you get to make a little bit of margin along the way but you get to keep that stock and um, in years to come that value just keeps increasing and if I can only if I could have only owned 20 percent of everything that I've sold over the last 10 years. Um, I might not be here, so um, yeah, everyone's made a lot of money, so it's a good outcome for all these investors. So, I mean, it's much better sitting here saying um, all, our, all our investors and all our clients have made a lot of money over the last years than saying the other way, you know, they've all lost money, so it's good. And now, outside of, of strictly sort of property development, you've also got a number of hospitality interests and, and hotel interests. Let's start with the Adelphi Hotel in Flinders Lane. How did something like that come up? And what are your sort of plans with it, or at least how have you been running it as a hotel owner and operator over the past couple of years since you acquired it? Yeah, so that asset, that came up as a uh, distressed asset. I, I owned the top two floors of that hotel building. Um, and again, I bought that, I was driving by Flinders Lane one day and I saw a sign and it said rooftop freehold, whatever, and I had never inspected it and I was a little bit younger. Uh, it was probably be close to 20 years ago now and I walked up not having inspected it or seen a contractor or anything and got in the lift, lift and walked, saw this, got onto the roof and had a swimming pool and I was like, fuck, I love this, this is, this is, this is great. And it was a bar at the time and I just said, I rang my uh, girlfriend at the time and I said, well, who's now my wife, I said, I'm going to buy this place, I've got no idea what I'm going to do for it, but, with it, but I love it. We could even build an apartment on here, run a bar, run a restaurant, but I'm buying it. And I was at the auction and I was the underbidder and it passed in and, um, and I was going down the lift. Um, I wasn't the underbidder, I was actually the highest bidder, but it passed in. And I'm heading back down the lift and I said, fuck, I missed out and I want to buy it. So I went back up and said to the agent, what do you want for it? And anyway, I think I paid an extra 150000 at the time. And, said, okay, I'm, I'm buying it. So I bought that and um, I ran a little business up there and one day the Adelphi Hotel Management was, went into liquidation and the receivers were in and being up there, having the right timing, I was first in and um, snapped that up and you know the rest is history. So we've been running that hotel now for six years um, and I really enjoy it. So I never, again, it's a business that I've never run before. I've never been part of it hotel chain or anything but just the experience of having that um, hotel has been fun um, not just see I don't really just do things just for business so you know I, I, I'd be I'd be deceitful to say that I've only do things for just the money it's not a lot of the times I just do it's I've got to find that right balance so there's a lot of projects that look really great and show great returns but I'm just like I just don't want to just don't want the headaches, don't want it. It's, it's, it's got to be a balance for me of less headaches, bit of fun, um, and 
less money if that if that's the the balance which I'm okay with and the Adelphi is a perfect example of that it's only a small hotel it's a boutique hotel my wife and I they stay there often whenever I've got business meetings we're there and um, if I'm late in the city I can stay there at night and get up and get room service or whatever it may be or, or pass out at the bar downstairs whatever whatever that may mean so and and how different or, or was there a learning curve that you had to um, sort of undergo being a, a property developer and then all of a sudden owning a, a hotel was it sort of different metrics and things you had to learn revenue per, per available room and, and occupancy uh, rates and that sort of thing no because I think because as a younger age I, again I started property when I was about 20 but at the same time I bought my first little bar. Um, a friend of mine owned a, a venue in uh, Mount Alexander Road in Essendon. It's, it was I named it Drew Bar, um, and you know I was running the bar on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, um, and doing property during the day. Um, and I just think that they worked so well together because I'd take all the cash on the Thursday, Friday night, um, and then and see no money in property. So it's actually a good balance because I wasn't making, getting any money out of the property business for a very, very long time. Just money in, money in, money in. So look, I've been in the hospitality industry and um, you know that's been great. It's also a lot of fun. Um, you know, uh, you have all your meetings there. You can talk property in your bars, it's actually good fun. And, and the hotel was another example of that. You know, I had a good manager in there that's been running it for the whole time. It was the existing manager, um, just didn't have the resources or the funds behind it. So now that, you know, we've got, there's three of us involved in that business side of the hotel and, um, you know, there's a good relationship there with, with all parties and it works well. And as a business owner in the city of Melbourne and with hospitality assets, we're above Barock House right now and you also own Bond Bar I believe. How do you or how do you think the council and, and the government should encourage people to get back into the city? Have you seen people starting to, to come back into these venues or do you think it'll take a couple of months for that to occur? Uh, look I'm not expecting uh, I'm not expecting to open up before February, March. Um, it's unfortunate but that'll be nearly 12 months of my venues being closed. Um, you know because our venues operate on volumes of people. Our venues operate on people dancing and, and carrying on. And, um, you know, it'd be very hard to police social distancing, um, you know, after three, four tequilas. I know that I probably would struggle with that. Um, so, you know, it's not that simple. So I can understand that that's going to be the last thing that will open. Um, you know, and accept that. Uh, we're just going to live with it. It is what it is. Um, now we can all complain, but at the end of the day, the reality is, is I wouldn't want to be the manager of my venues trying to, you know, have some social distancing on a dance floor, uh, making sure everyone's wearing their mask or whatever it may be. It's just not going to happen. So, you know, we'll just have to wait and see and hopefully all that gets resolved and then we're, we're back to um, the dance floor singing tunes. You're also a, a significant player in the horse racing industry. I know you've got a, a partnership with Bray Sikolsky from Max Cap and you also know um, a number of the other players well, Phil Merton being one. How did you get into horses? Has this been a, a sort of lifelong passion and, uh, and I suppose the second part of that is where has it led you to? I know you've had a lot of success so perhaps take us through uh, some yeah. of those successes. It'd be easy for me to say it was a lifelong passion but it, 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 it never was because I'd never watched a horse race until probably about eight years ago, um, nine years ago. Um, my, my father wasn't into horse racing, my family wasn't, neither was anyone you know, that I was close to. A couple of friends um, you know, were a 50 cent punter or whatever back then they used to call her or 
you know, $5 punter. But other than that, I wasn't really into it. Um, and uh, probably about eight years ago, I bought a couple of harness horses with a close friend of mine. And the only reason we did that, again, I had no idea. The only reason we did that was just to go out socially and go to the races, have dinner, spend the night out and just have a bit of fun. And um, we did that because they were just guys I grew up with that I hadn't seen for 10 years. And I remember calling and I said, I know you're into your horses. I haven't seen you for so long and I've just been working. I just want an outlet. Let's just go and find me two, three nice horses that you like. I, want, I don't want horses running 20 lengths that can last. Give me, get some harness horses that can win some races. We can go to the races, you know, bring the girls and, and have some fun. And so he was very excited and we, we bought them and then it just went from, we had a really good success buying those couple of horses. And one day in the car park, uh, driving, just leaving the car park at Melton, one of the guys said to me, why are you in harness horses for? I said, well, I don't know anything else. I don't know anything about gallopers. He said, I've got one for you. Come in. And I came into this horse and I said, all right, well, okay, well, you know, give me 20% or give me 20% of it. And that horse we bought into ended up um, winning a group one and was worth, I think we ended up selling it for $5 million and it was about $300,000 purchase all up. So that was actually really got me into it. I said, well, fuck, how easy is this? Um, you know, I want more of this and um, started to really enjoy um, racing and really getting into it. It's just, it's just a, um, my personality, I guess, if I do things, I really want to do it right. Um, if I'm into something, I really like to understand it all back to front. It's not just about winning. I want to understand the whole process from start to finish. I'm not just in it for the, you know, the glory at the end of the day. I mean, that is nice. I don't think anyone can argue that but I enjoy all the lead-ups and all the work that goes into it um, early. And I've met some really good friends, well, relationships that have now become very good friends, like you've mentioned Phil and got some other, like John O'Neill and, and Bray Sikolsky and, and, you know, a lot, a lot more other guys that um, I don't think those opportunities would have would have met those guys in another circle or another time. So the horse racing's been really kind to me, not just on the, on the racetrack, because I've had a very good time with that, um, but just the relationships you get and the social aspect of horse racing. And, and I think what I find is they're very, very much like-minded people. Um, you know, you're very similar, you're in businesses, you've got, they've got, a, most times they've got a little bit more money, you know, to, to be able to spend on horses and, 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 you know, they can afford to lose because I think anyone that goes and invests into horses that thinks they're guaranteed to win, you know, it's got rocks in the head. You just got to go in there saying, I've done my money cold and anything else that comes out of it is great. So um, I think you get that. Um, that like-minded people in that industry that you get along with and that's what surely what's happened to me and I've got some good friends and um, you know Bray's an example of someone that I've done business with through the horse racing and you know and that's been a great relationship and he's like a like a brother from another mother to me you know we're like we've known each other for four years and it's like we've known each other for 20 um, you know so it, it's it's definitely been one of the big perks of horse racing is the people I've met along the way um, and the relationships that I've got along the way. And you know what, it does transfer in business because you are very similar in a lot of aspects and a lot of them do have their own businesses and, and you, you actually want to help each other out. So, you know, you, you want to see what they're doing. Oh, maybe we can do business together. What, what do you do? And you sit down, you spend, you have an hour meeting, the first 50 minutes is about horse racing and the next 10 minutes is about business and you've done a deal you know <laughs> that's essentially how it normally goes unfortunately well fortunately that's you know it's 90% about racing and a little bit about business but I think there's that yeah it's good 
And just take us through, say, the past 12 months. Uh, I know you've had some, some significant ups and, and perhaps some, some downs, but uh, take us through, say, this time 12 months ago, or might have been sort of 12 and a half months ago with uh, the Caulfield Cup winner. Ah, oh, that was the year. So, uh, well, about 12 months ago, uh, Bray and I were involved in a horse called Yes, Yes, Yes. Uh, which won the Everest, um, and uh, that was an amazing thrill um, for us. That was not long ago now, when um, we were able to sell that um, to a stud, which is now it'll be off. To, it's in the breeding barn, and um, it's it's having a happy life, eating grass and um, doing its thing. Um, and don't we all wish that that was our <laughs> retirement plan? Um, so I think that that was great. And then not long after that, we had a horse called Tagaloa win the the Blue Diamond, um, and again, same sort of result. We were able to put that away, stud, and for real good value, and um, same sort of outcome for you know the owners. And you know, we've had we've had a great run. Look, I'm not complaining. And again, it's been like probably too good to be true. The run we've had this year, you know, we've won a few Group Ones along the way, and you know, including uh, the Caulfield Cup, with very elegant and um, the Cox Plate with Sir Dragon A. Um, so, look, I don't think it'll ever happen again for us, um, but I can, I can say it's been an incredible ride um, and something we'll cherish for a very long time. And um, I do appreciate it. We're pretty humble about the experience. I mean, it's a little bit, um, you know, you sit back now a couple of weeks after and you just think, wow, can't believe that was actually done. Because if you asked us, if I thought back 12 months ago, this is what we'd achieve for the next 12 months, you'd think you're, you're an imbecile. Um, just doesn't happen. So um, to have achieved that with, more importantly, to have achieved that with a real good bunch of mates and owners um, has been the best part of it. And we'll cherish that. It's like playing a grand, for those who have played a grand final together in any sport, you know, those teammates that you've played with, you just, you won't forget them. Mm. You, know, you cherish that moment forever. And I think um, that's what we've got very close with the, group of people we've got and uh, and even with all of us all the racing they're all mates and family and friends and we all in it together and we have a great time um, I think it costs us more um, having dinner and going out for drinks than it does training these horses um, so we've just got to find a way of getting that right 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 balance so um, the smart ones the smart ones are the ones that take only one percent of a horse because yeah. still get all the perks of all the drinks, the food and everything, yeah. um, they're always in front. But yeah, um, it works out well, but um, it's been fun and um, no regrets. And I'm sure the ledger will swing the other way um, over time. So the best thing for me to do if I was smart is to just pull up stumps right now and we're in front and we can say, we're, but that's never gonna happen. So we'll have to we'll give back and we'll donate along the way the next four or five years until we get our next winter probably. <laughs> so we'll probably be talking to me in about two years time and I'll be saying, oh, I just want to win a maiden in sale. So we'll see how we go. Mate, uh, Ozzy, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on this afternoon. Thanks again for your time. Thank you.